Hi, my name is Mike. I'm the founder of Zeroco, and you are listening to Unconventional Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to HubSpot's Unconventional Business. A show about how Australian and New Zealand brands are growing and winning by putting the customer experience first. We're talking with leaders from our best homegrown brands about their journey, the decisions they made along the way, and their biggest learnings. I'm James Gilbert. And I'm Kat Warboys, and we'll be your hosts this season. Now let's get into the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Unconventional Business Podcast. I'm James Gilbert, and I'll be your host today. I'm really looking forward to today's guest. He's the founder of an Aussie brand that's on a mission to reduce single-use plastic in people's homes, and he's seeing impressive success with the company that's still at a very early stage. We're joined by Mike Smith, the founder of Zero Co. Hey, Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, James. Good to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming along. You've, you've kept me very entertained for the past couple of hours watching your YouTube videos. So uh, <laughs> even for that, it's been worth it. Look, it's, but, I've had fun. I've had a lot of fun on this journey. Um, I, I'm pretty happy to take the piss out of myself, but I reckon in 30 years time, I'm going to look back some, on some of these videos on the internet and just go, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? Why did I dress up in those silly outfits to try and get people to stop using single-use plastic? <laughs> uh, my favorite people are people that don't take themselves too seriously. Your kids, I'm sure, will get a lot of enjoyment out of that video <laughs> in the future, though. I yep. think that's one thing we, our parents didn't have to worry about as much. We have to worry about. We've got large digital footprints that our kids will probably find and, and use against us in different ways uh, when we're older. For people who don't know what ZeroCo is, um, do you mind giving us a bit of an explainer on on the company and how it came to be? Yeah, sure. So we, look, we're on a mission to solve the global single-use plastic problem by doing two things, funding large-scale ocean cleanups and stopping single-use plastic being made, used once, and, and being sent to landfill. Um, so to do that, we make a range of planet-friendly personal care and home cleaning products, stuff like shampoo, conditioner, laundry liquid, um, hand wash, body wash. And we deliver it direct to Aussie homes, um, minus all the single-use plastic. So in your first box of Zeroco products, you get a set of what we call forever bottles um, that you keep at your house and refill forever, and a set of refill pouches that you use to fill up the forever bottle. And then you send the empty pouch back to us for free in a reply paid envelope. We then clean and sanitize the pouch, refill it, and send it back out to another customer. So it's it's solving the single-use plastic problem and funding ocean cleanups because the forever bottles are made from plastic that we've pulled out of the ocean and collected off beaches. Um, And in our first 12 months of business, we pulled almost a million water bottles worth of rubbish out of the ocean and off beaches to make our our first generation forever bottles. That's that's pretty good for your first year. So so the ocean cleanups, you then use that plastic for the creation of your kind of forever bottles as opposed to single-use bottles. So it's a really... Correct, yeah. So we basically what we do is we, we collect all of this rubbish um, from oceans and beaches. We then sort it and, and we take out the high-density polyethylene, the HDPE plastic, which we use for our bottles. We then mm-hmm. recycle that or process that here in Australia. Um, and we mix that with landfill-diverted plastic um, to create yeah. what we call OBL, so ocean, beach, and landfill plastic. And we then take that plastic... Um, and turn it into our bottles here in Australia. And the idea is you have one bottle for life, right? So you have yep. one hand wash bottle that you just keep refilling over and over and over again. 
Um, and by purchasing that one bottle, you've helped fund large-scale ocean cleanups. I think a lot of us have seen just plastic everywhere. Like I, I'm speaking to you from Singapore today. I went for a swim in the ocean on what's meant to be the nicest beach uh, like a few months ago, and there was just plastic everywhere. And Singapore's pretty good at keeping things clean. You know, you don't notice a lot in the streets. They do things in the ocean. I was like, wow, this is like, you know, I've been to a ton of countries. You see plastic everywhere. But you're like, if the one place I wouldn't expect to see it is a Singaporean beach, but it was still everywhere. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit around, I know you really, you went on a trip and that was a big part of the reason you started the company. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think it's something a lot of, Aussies listening who travel a bunch can probably resonate with. Yeah, for sure. Look, the the, the plastic problem is is pretty crazy. It's pretty heartbreaking when you look into it and you, and you understand the statistics. Um, and I think that there's two parts to it here, right? Which is we're, we're trying to solve both of these problems with our business. The first is that that recycling is a ginormous hoax that's been perpetuated on the public for decades and decades and decades. Um, here in Australia, we've been convinced by the government that we have a recycling system and everyone's got a recycling bin and you put your single-use plastics in the recycling bin thinking that the garbage truck comes and gets it and takes it to a processing facility in Australia and it gets turned into another bottle. That categorically does not happen, has never been happening in Australia. I've heard rumours that that was a hoax. I didn't realise that was real. Up until very recently, we were shipping all of our our so-called recyclables overseas to Malaysia, to the Philippines, to China. And it was being buried in holes in the ground in, in landfills or it was being incinerated. Um, and, and those countries have all recently just said, you know, we're not taking your rubbish anymore. So the government is frantically trying to build recycling infrastructure. Um, yeah. But the government itself released a, a waste report last year that showed that only 15% of all of the plastics that we consume in Australia actually get recycled. So 85% oh. of all the stuff that you think is getting recycled is ending up in landfill somewhere or ending up in the ocean. So um, recycling is not a thing. Um, yep. It will never be a, a solution to the problem. So our whole business model is we need to replace recycling with a refill model, right? So buy one bottle, mm-hmm. have one bottle for the rest of your life and refill it over and over and over again instead of going to the supermarket every couple of weeks and buying a new bottle and chucking it in the bin because it just ends up in landfill. And then the second piece is just the scale of um, plastic that is entering our oceans. There was a research report released out of Europe um, earlier this year, which said that globally, a garbage truck worth of rubbish every minute enters our oceans. So every minute of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, a garbage truck goes into the ocean every single minute. Um, yeah. And if the rate continues, there'll be more plastic in the ocean by weight than fish by the year 2050. Just, just let that sink in for a second. More plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050. Yeah. It's insane, yeah. right? This is, a, this is a huge, big, crazy global problem. Um, and we've come along and said, look, we just need to solve this and solve it quickly. Um, and that's what we're trying to do, basically. I think this is a problem that everybody has known has existed for a while. But like, like most things, there's been a bit of inertia in actually doing something about it. Like what for you was the real catalyst that you were like, you know what, I've known about this problem, but it's just, I have to do something now. Like what pushed you over the edge to take action? Yeah. So I went on a, I went on a big trip around the world. I I had a previous business, which I sold in 2017. um, And my wife and I went overseas for, you know, a bit over 18 months. and And we went to some pretty crazy remote places 
Um, we, we spent most of our time hiking and trekking and camping and, and kind of getting out into some pretty wild nature. Um, you know, we went to we went to North Korea. We trekked along the oh, border wow. of Tajikistan and, and Afghanistan for a month. Um, we stayed in, in Kurdish villages along the Iran-Iraq border. Um, we went to Kamchatka Jeez. in the far northeast of, of Russia, up in the Arctic Circle. Um, you know, we went to some really, really off the beaten track places. That is a very off the beaten track list. Yeah, yeah. We we, <laughs> we spent basically it was eighteen months, and we did twenty seven countries all through kind of the Middle Jeez. East, Central Asia, and, and the middle of nowhere, I guess. And I was blown away by the amount of plastic that I saw in these parts of the world where there aren't any people. You know, sometimes we were trekking for a month at a time, and we wouldn't see any sign of human life. Um, and you'd get to the head of this um, valley, you know, 5,000 metres above sea level, beautiful azure alpine lake full of rubbish at the bottom. And you just think, how how's this plastic oh. even gotten here? Um, yeah. or, or up in, you know, the far northeast of Russia, almost opposite Alaska, middle of nowhere wilderness, um, beaches full of plastic that's just washed in from other parts of the world. Uh, yeah. And so for me, seeing um, how pervasive the plastic problem is in remote parts of the world um, really, really affected me. Because you're, you're right, like you said, you know, you see it in Singapore. If you, if you go to China, you go to India, you go to Indonesia, these big, dense population centers where there's lots of people and there's not great um, waste infrastructure, you, you expect to see plastic and rubbish everywhere, right? But when yeah. you go right out into wilderness and you see it's made its way there as well, it's pretty heartbreaking. Um, so I basically said to myself at the end of this trip, you know what, I'm going to go home to Australia and I'm going to start a business with the sole mission of trying to solve this problem globally, as crazy and audacious as that sounds. Yeah. Um, that's what I said. And that's what I've been doing basically every day of my life for the last two years. I will jump into that in one sec. I have to ask a question that if I was listening to this podcast, I'd really want to know, is there a plastic problem in North Korea? Uh, there is, yeah. <laughs> North Korea is not um, insulated from the, from the dearth of plastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is amazing. I've, I've traveled a bit around few of the countries you mentioned, not most of them. You've, that's a really impressive list. But it always was amazing to me that you could be in like a hill station in India that's like very small population. And then there's like a Coca-Cola yeah. branded drink stand that, yeah. you know, it's all single use plastics. So I was like, geez, the tentacles of Coca-Cola go so deeply across the world. And, yeah. you know, I imagine they're actually one of the bigger sources of single use plastics in a, in a lot of these places. Um, so tell us, you you launched this business via a Kickstarter campaign and it was incredibly successful. Can you tell us around a little bit like why you wanted to do Kickstarter, but then a lot of people listening would be like, well, how do you actually crack the Kickstarter model? Like how mm. do you – I think you were the most successful Australian campaign ever, I believe, around three-quarters of a million raised. Uh, it was it was huge. So can you talk about like why Kickstarter and then how? Yeah, totally. So first of all, the reason we did a Kickstarter campaign is – from a strategic level, what we're trying to do here is build a community of people who care about the planet and care about its future and want to be part of the solution. I don't believe that governments are going to solve this problem. I don't believe big business is going to solve the problem. And I don't believe charities are going to solve the problem. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that this global plastic problem is going to be solved by a movement of the people who are, who are making changes in their consumption um, habits to, to fix the problem. And so 
if we're trying to build a people-powered solution to the plastic problem, it just made total sense to go out to the people and say, hey, we've got this idea. It's all about building a community to help solve the plastic problem. We want you to be part of the community. Help us build this business from, from day one. Um, so that's why we did it. And, and then in terms of um, how do you crack the Kickstarter model, um, yeah. I, I am not an expert. I've done one Kickstarter campaign in my life. Um, it happened to be you know, well. the, biggest, the biggest one in Australia in 2019, 750 grand we raised. Um, the, the learnings for me come down to um, a couple of things. First of all, if you want to use Kickstarter as a, as a fundraising platform for your business, you can't just think that you'll launch on Kickstarter and it'll just work, right? You have to do a whole bunch of work. You have to bring the audience to Kickstarter. Kickstarter, the audience in Kickstarter doesn't really exist. Um, it's yep. a platform, not a community. So we spent, you know, three months in the lead up to our campaign running ads um, and driving people to a landing page to get their email address to say, hey, we're about to launch this project. If you're interested, give us your email ad address and we'll keep you updated. Um, mm -hmm. And we spent three months communicating to this growing group of people about the mission, about the solution, about the products, about the business, um, about me. Um, yeah. And, you know, we had, I think we had about 12 and a half thousand people on our mailing list when we launched the Kickstarter campaign who had been taken on a three month journey and had gotten to know me personally and gotten to know the business. Um, so then when we did launch, it, it was, you know, we, we were able to push a big group of people to the platform to, to support us. That's a super useful way to think about it. So Kickstarter, I think a lot of people look at it and simplistically would be like, oh, I want to start a business. Well, I'll just launch a Kickstarter thing and that'll raise the funds. But it's actually Kickstarter is the mechanism for the funding, but you actually have to build the community outside that and bring them to Kickstarter to, for the funding element. Yeah, so like to give you some like hard, like real world data, we raised... I think it was seven hundred and forty-seven thousand dollars in pre-orders that we generated, and only yep. thirty thousand dollars of that total pool came from pre-existing Kickstarter customers. Wow! The rest of it came from people who had never ever backed a Kickstarter project before. And presumably, as your campaign was getting more and more successful in the time it was running, you got a lot more visibility through the Kickstarter platform. Correct. Yeah, and also it, it, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit. Like if you if you get on a Kickstarter, you have success in the first few days, you've got an opportunity yeah. to get some media coverage. So then we, you know, we were lucky enough to get a spot on the Today Show, um, did some yep. interviews on ABC Radio, and it just started to snowball. It's all about momentum, right? Um, once yep. once people see that you're having success, other people want to be involved in it. Um, it's the it's the yeah. classic law of attraction stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so. Once those people sign up, they're really signing up for a subscription for life, I guess. For your yes and no. So there's no subscription yeah. model. Um, our, our business yep. still today operates on a purchase whatever you want, whenever you need it. Um, there's no oh, locking contracts. You just jump on and when, if, you, if you're running out of hand wash, jump on and order some hand wash. Um, yep. But we are about to launch a subscription model in the coming weeks um, yep. as an option. So people will still be able just to come to the website and purchase whatever they want. But if they do want to sign up to a subscription and get a delivery every two months, they'll be able to do that. Yep. Um, and there'll be a discount to do that as well. And so, so it sounds like you started off with the bang Kickstarter campaign, incredibly successful, very thoughtful around how you did it to build the community first, then use that as a funding mechanism. Then 
what was next? Like, I, I always worry dun, when dun, people dun, hear dun. this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I always worry when people just hear number one Kickstarter campaign, they think, oh, this company just was off to the races from day one. But there's always an underbelly of pain uh, and obstacles they had to come over. So yeah. I think there definitely is with you, given the sound effects. What, totally. what happened? Um, this little thing called COVID happened. I don't know if you remember oh. that thing. <laughs> little Rona, Hurricane Rona. Corona happened. Um, yeah. And, and it's it's a little bit hard for some people to remember what the first few months of coronavirus were like um, because there's been so many waves of this thing and so many mm. different experiences for people. But the first three months, it was it was like the end of the world stuff if you were running a business. Um, yeah. And if you were trying to launch a business, it was even worse than the end of the world uh, because- yeah. You know, the whole global supply chain industry, um, production, everything just went into chaos, absolute chaos. Um, and so, you know, we we had told our customers on the Kickstarter campaign that we would deliver the products in six months. And that was based on all of the information that we had available from all of our suppliers that we were working with. Um, and that literally overnight went from six months to 12 months because you know, the, the contract manufacturer who was making a hand wash in Australia could no longer get some raw materials that they needed from Europe. Um, delays just went from, you know, six week windows to 14 week windows to 27 week windows to 48 week Ooh. windows. Um, we were trying to build a machine in China at the time to uh, clean and sanitize our pouches. The factory that we were working with got commandeered by the Communist Party um, as did lots of factories in China to start pumping out masks and PEP for or PPE for the Chinese population. So whole big chunks of Chinese industry just got taken over by the government to to deal with the coronavirus. So our, wow. our project just stopped in the middle of you know building this quite complicated, expensive piece of machinery. Uh, it was mayhem, to be honest with you. Yeah. It was that that first six months of of the project after Kickstarter were probably the most difficult. Um, six months of my business career because we we had some um, supply chain partners in Europe, we had some supply chain partners in Asia, we had some supply chain partners in Australia, and it was just it was mayhem, meltdown, hair. Yeah. Like I think I lost an inch, my hairline receded an inch in that six months. <laughs> oh, uh, as someone with the receding hairline, I can I can have sympathy <laughs> for you. It's not that's not great. The uh that's a lot, and but it, one of the things with old Hurricane Rona is I feel that we're still not out of the woods, and we're still hearing about supply chain issues all all over the shop. It sounds like after six months or so, things got resolved for you. How? Um, it, it basically was just a case of um, perseverance, and um, you know, mm. old fashioned street hustler stuff, and just twisting arms and and bending elbows and doing whatever you have to do to get. Um, get your stuff made. Um, yeah. And so we ended up being able to finally deliver products to customers in November of last year. So it was, it was a full 12 months from the Kickstarter until we started delivering. And, you know, I think we did a really good job of communicating with our seven and a half thousand customers who'd pre-ordered, you know, I was sending a monthly update saying, this is exactly what's going on. And it yeah. was a warts and all honest, you know, um, no BS bit of comms every month about all the challenges that we were facing and, and all the little yep. wins we were having along the way. And I think in hindsight, it was actually a, a really positive experience for us in some ways because um, all of these people, uh, they, they got to know they got to know me really well. Um, yeah. We could see all the challenges that we were coming up against. 
Um, And so it really helped build this community going through this kind of period of adversity as a group. Um, Yeah, I think it was in in the end, it was a really positive thing for our business, to be honest with you. It's interesting. You see so many business and politicians, when something goes bad, they sometimes try to like, like BS their consumers or their constituents. And it's so transparent that that's what's happening and it just erodes trust. I always wonder, I'm like, if you were just transparent, people would have more empathy for the situation and you'd increase their trust and you'd have more loyal customers or constituents. Like most people are pretty reasonable. Like if you explain, hey, this is all the set of things that have happened and that's caused a delay. It's like, oh, that that makes a lot of sense. God, like, good luck getting through it. I want to see you get through it. We're in this together. Whereas if you'd just been, like, shady on the details and just, you know, maybe even played the blame game and saying, like, it's not our fault, it's this other person's fault, it'd be like, well, look, I don't care whose fault it is, but uh, you just would have eroded that trust. Is that... E- and it feels like by you being transparent, you've built trust and have a stronger community because of it. Like in, in actual fact, sometimes when you have those problems, if you address them in the right way, which it generally seems to be as transparent and constructive as possible, it's actually a win for you. Would you say that or that's maybe a bridge too far? No, no, not at all. Like it, it's been one of um, my biggest learnings on this journey. And, you know, it's one of our one of our company or brand values is radical transparency. Um, mm. it's written on the wall in our office, you know, on a big poster hanging over all our desks. And, and it just comes from, you know, the philosophy of, of if you have nothing to hide, if you're trying to do something really good in the world um, and you yeah. have honest intentions, then don't hide anything. Just put it all on the table. When you make mistakes, own up to them and, and just be transparent, be honest and go, hey, this happened. It's our fault. We got it wrong. Um, yeah. This is what we've learned. This is what we're going to do better in the future. Um, and you're right. Like, if that is your approach and you just own your mistakes and be honest with people, if people don't accept that and and want to not like you for that, then they're, they're being dicks, to be honest. Like, it's really hard <laughs> to, to not, like, to empathize or, or have a negative reaction to someone being brutally honest about stuff. Um, yeah. And it is, it's confronting and it's challenging for, for people and for businesses oh, for because sure. it requires being vulnerable um, and and being vulnerable publicly, it's it's a challenging thing. It's a challenging emotion to come to terms with. Um, yes. And I've certainly been on a journey with it. And the more that I push my vulnerabilities, the more that I am open and honest and transparent, um, the yep. stronger the response from people. So it's been a massive learning experience for me, and but but really positive, I have to say. It'd be nice if some of our politicians in Australia took took notice of that. It would. I, I think the same thing all the time, James. And I also, I just think it's such an easy win for people in the oh, public sphere. Just so honest, easy. Like- that's, what, that's what kills me about it too. I'm like, this isn't even a case of trying to do the right thing. It's the pragmatic thing for you as a politician to yes. have people trust you more and yeah. to make sure you're not alienating them. Yeah. And the way you do that is just through being more honest. Like, I think- you know, most people regard Australians in particular as pretty good at having a BS meter and yep. talk, you know, saying things how they are. If you try to do the opposite and cover things up or blame someone else, it's like, yeah, I see what's going on and now I don't trust you as much. And yeah. 
Yeah, uh, totally. It's it's disappointing, but you know, we'll see. We'll see how that shakes out. Um, so talk to us about the post Kickstarter growth. I imagine a lot of businesses you get that boost of customers, but then how do you build an engine to keep getting customers beyond that and and really turn it from a a hot idea that resonates with a lot of people into a durable business that's growing uh, month over month. Mm. So I, th- I think for us, there's been a couple of things that have um, been key to our early success. And, and look, early success is not a sign of future success. It's, it's been a pretty crazy wild ride. Um, there have been bumps along the road already. There will be more bumps along the road to come. I'm sure of that. Um, but I think the things for us that we've focused on is, is first of all, product and making sure that we've got a really incredible product that works as well, if not better than what you can go and buy at the supermarket, because there's no point having an awesome mission if your product sucks, because people aren't going to come back and buy again. Um, So really, really focusing on product efficacy, making sure it is amazing, making sure the fragrances are super premium um, and making sure it works, right? That's that's Mm. the first thing. And then I think the second thing is around um, providing a really exceptional customer experience and, and making our entire business revolve around community and doing the best we can to solve the needs of our customers and our community, which is helping them, um, you know, use less single use plastic in their home and making that as easy as possible and as cost effective as possible. And then I think over those two things is, is layering over this, this big audacious mission of trying to fund large scale ocean cleanups, trying to pull as much rubbish out of the ocean and off beaches as we can and trying Mm -hmm. to stop as much single use plastic going to landfill um, and and kind of leading with that message and, and making sure everyone knows that, you know, I didn't start this company because I get super excited about manufacturing toilet cleaner. Like I don't, I don't wake up in the yeah. morning and go, yes, I'm, I'm in the toilet cleaner business. I'm so stoked yeah. what I'm doing with my life. Um, I get out of bed and get super excited about trying to have a big oversized impact on this big global problem. And if we just keep yeah. reminding people, that's why we exist. We exist to solve yeah. the single-use plastic problem. Um it resonates with people because people understand oh, there's a problem sure. and people want to be part of the solution. Yeah. I feel like especially people like in Australia where it's so ocean, such an ocean-centric life, it's really in your face. You can't, you can't avoid the problem. Um, but it's often interesting where it's a little bit, you know, as we were chatting earlier, your catalyst to actually start this business, people know problems exist Getting them to do something about it is mm. very hard. Like, what were some of the friction points that you were like, look, if it's a choice between us and whatever brand at the supermarket, if they can just pull it off the shelf when someone's in the supermarket, it's hard to beat that convenience. Like, how did you add more convenience, strip out more friction to take the people that were like orientated towards your values, but lazy? Yeah, totally. Or, you know, it, it's a thing that we people, think about every single day and a thing that we struggle mm-hmm. with every day. How do we make this more convenient? How do we make this easier for people to ditch single-use plastic at home? Um, yeah. I think there's a couple of things for us. Um, it comes down to, again, making sure the product is amazing, making sure that our laundry liquid works better than Omo, right? Because then mm-hmm. um, there's no reason not to buy ours um, and do that whilst having um, no nasty ingredients in those products that you would get in the supermarket products. Um, I think price competitiveness. So our products are yeah. competitively priced with the supermarket leading brands. Um, so those two things are super critical, right? Efficacy yeah. and price. Um, and then 
trying to make it as easy as possible for, for the customer. So, you know, order online, we deliver straight to your door. You don't have to get in the car, go down to the shops and lug around heavy bottles of stuff. Um, we give you a free reply paid return mailer for you to send back the empty pouches to us. So it doesn't cost you anything to send the pouches back to us. Um, we're about to launch some new um, shipping models as well. So we're, we're setting up some new um, facilities, distribution facilities in, in Melbourne and Brisbane, which should enable us to deliver product to customers in kind of 24 to 48 hours in metro areas all along the East Coast. So if you run out of dishwashing liquid on Wednesday night, you can jump online and order and it should be here for Thursday or Friday morning. Um, so all of those kind of things, just trying to make this quicker and easier and, and more, um, more convenient. Yeah. The, how, how have you managed to crack efficacy and price? Like if I'm looking at this from the outside, I'm like, well, you're competing against multi-billion dollar companies that have a lot of scale. How can you ever be price competitive? And like, presumably, or at least they tell us they're investing a lot to always make their products better. I mean, like, I don't know if toothpaste now is really that much better from 10 years ago. There's certainly a lot of branding and names of stuff they say they're doing, but it's like, uh, tell us how you've cracked those two things. Because from the outside, it's like, it would seem a bit impossible vis-a-vis your competitors. Yeah, definitely. So, couple of things. Um, first of all, by by cutting out the middleman and going direct to Aussie homes, um, mm-hmm. that saves a massive chunk of money or leaves leaves a massive chunk of money on the table. So if we're going to go to a supermarket, they're going to want to take a 50% margin. So if we're selling a product wow. for $10 retail at the supermarket, they take five bucks. That only leaves Jeez. us five bucks to make a really awesome product. Um, yeah. But if we sell it direct to the customer for $10, that gives us 10 bucks to make the product as awesome as we can. Um, mm-hmm. So there's just more dollars in in each unit to, to be able to spend on ingredients. And that's exactly what we've done. We've invested more money. Um, our cost of goods would be vastly more expensive than the supermarket brands because we are using really premium ingredients to make sure that the products are better than what you get at the supermarket. Um, yeah. That's that's the first thing. And then, and then the second thing is um, most of the big guys don't reformulate all that often, to be completely honest with you. Yeah. Um, and so it's not rocket science. I've always been a bit skeptical on like, it's a new Oxy 10 it's, laundry clean. I'm like, really? That's right. It's not rocket science. Um, and, yeah. and, and the interesting thing is, is there has been a lot of new chemistry that's come about and new um, ways of making cleaning products and personal care products using natural ingredients, which a lot of the yep. big guys have been very slow to adopt. Um, so we've yep. come in and said, you know what? You can actually make products that perform as well using natural ingredients. It, it is yeah. 100% a thing now. And it wasn't that way 10 years ago, um, but it is. So that, that's been another kind of differentiator for us is having really um, natural ingredients in our products. Yeah. Why, why wasn't it the way 10 years ago? Um, I think a couple of things. I think there wasn't a demand or a large enough demand from customers for yeah. environmentally friendly products. So as a result of that, there wasn't research and development being done into alternative ways to formulate these products. Um, mm-hmm. And therefore the, the products weren't being manufactured that way. And, and, and in most cases, it's cheaper to make materials in a lab from petrochemicals um, yeah. than it is to use a natural, a natural ingredient or a natural derivative. So it was a cost kind of driven exercise, to be honest. Yeah. One of the things you said was interesting. So, you know, a lot of your competitors selling through supermarket, they lose a lot of 
margin there um, that essentially now you can you can dedicate that same amount of money to your product and then sell at their same price point because you're going direct to consumer. You you can be uh, that that same price point. One other thing that's interesting about your business is being so it, there's just such a strong value value element to it where your values are very clear. You're having this enormously positive impact on the world. Does that also mean that you can spend less on marketing? Like I think, you know, if I'm comparing you against whatever Oxy, blah, 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 laundry cleaner. Yep. They have to spend all this money talking about Oxy 10 formulation, blah, 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 crap. And you can just be talking about your values and what you do in the world. You don't necessarily, that your message is far more viral than Oxy 10. I'll likely hear about it from friends and lots, you know, other people. Your customers would be very passionate retelling the story and finding you more customers. Do you also save on marketing or not now, but you envisage in the future you will? Yeah, I don't know if it's if it's cheaper. I think it's just much more powerful, right? Yeah. Um, and as you say, like, you, you find out about new products quite often from, from friends and family, like, um, that's the most powerful form of um, recommendation or, or product referral, right? Is someone that you know and trust tells you something. Um, and you're right, people aren't going into the office on Monday and saying, hey, I tried this new hand wash. You won't believe how yeah. amazing it is. That, no, no, I'm, that's never happened in my 38 years on the planet. No one's ever said that to me. But yeah. you do go into the office on Monday and say, hey, I heard about this new company that's got a mission to solve the single-use plastic problem and they've pulled a million water bottles worth of plastic out of the ocean and they're making it really easy for me to use less single-use plastic at home. That's the story that people will tell other people. Um, yep. So it just becomes more powerful because we've got a genuine, real-world, honest intention mission at the heart of everything that we do. That makes a ton of sense. I think <clears throat> it's interesting. We're seeing the rise of companies. I think people used to think like, oh, that's cute, but you can't create a big company doing that. That that uh, perspective is starting to shatter. I think we're seeing more and more companies who are doing, you know, business but doing good for the world, getting huge results. Like I think we just saw, um, uh, there was like there's a, been a bunch over the last year, uh, and I think people have been surprised how big a business you can actually create where you're trying to do something positive for the world as well. Do you envisage that you will be expanding beyond Australia or you're like just wanting to tackle it to Australian consumers for quite a while? Yeah, definitely. Look, there's, there's been a heap of, of companies that have been successful now building mission-based businesses. And, and even mm. in our category, um, you know, the, 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 the guys that came before us, the, you know, thank you and, and who gives a crap are two yeah. awesome examples of mission-based yeah. businesses in kind of personal care, home cleaning space. Um, they're really big businesses, you know, many, many times larger than ours and have done awesome stuff for the planet. Um, so we, we definitely stand on the shoulders of those giants, you know, with, with our business model. Um, yeah. And that they've proven that you can. You can scale a business. You can be successful. Um, you know, that both of those companies have donated $10 million to their respective um, projects around the world, whether it's water sanitization or, or building toilets. Um, or yep. ending poverty, it's it's incredible stuff. Um, and it's I huge think numbers. I, I think the future here is if if you are trying to launch a business, 
um, from today onwards and you're not actually trying to tackle a big problem in the world, you are going to struggle to grow as a business because people want to see solutions to some of these big challenges the planet faces. And I think it's it's going to be um, no longer something that companies do every now and again because they think it's good for marketing and it needs to be baked into the you know the mission and the DNA of the company, I, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I fully agree. There's actually a there's a Steve Jobs <clears throat> quote from when a video from when he came back uh, to Apple talking about this very thing that marketing is just it's about values. And he was talking about you know Nike as having such a phenomenal brand, and they're never like what they sell is a commodity. It's like a shoe. It's, it, there's tons of shoe manufacturers. But what they talk about and celebrate is great athletes. And yep. that is what they are known for. And his equivalent for Apple was he wanted to, that's when they produced their 1984 ad that's like, we're about supporting entrepreneurs and the adventurers and the people who are trying to change the world. And yep. it just, it resonates so strongly with people. If they were just talking about, oh, our CPU runs at this speed or that speed, mm. people would be like, oh, yeah. Cool, whatever. Like I might yeah. check it on a price sheet before I buy it, but I'm definitely not talking to my partner or my parents or my friends about it. Yeah. Um, and it's the companies who crack the values piece, but also do it authentically. Like I'm sure every company says, yeah, like we have values. We paid this consultant to come in and run a workshop with 30 of our people and we've decided our values are like honesty and <laughs> breathing air and totally. like all the other things you should do. And again, it's like, it's kind of transparent. Like people see integrity as a value. It's like, oh, I would have hoped I could just assume you would have integrity. Now I need to worry about it, that you have to like purposefully be trying to 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 be honest with me as a consumer. Um, why, why, why do you think there is that disconnect where like how do – these organizations that frankly you're competing against some of them when I'm sure they all talk about their values and their impact on the world, but it's pretty transparent. It's not as positive. It could be. Is it just a sunk cost element where they're like, look, we're too far down this road to turn quickly. Like what, what is mm, it? Do you think the, the vacuous nature of corporate um, value? Yeah, it's a big topic. Eh? Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. I'm not going to name the name, but I was on one of our competitors, their shampoo brand. Um, mm. They come in a pretty pink bottle. And, and I was on their website the other day having a look around and they've got a section on their values. And one of their values is sustainability. And it's just a tile on the website that says sustainability. And you can't click it. There's no extra information. There's no background, <laughs> no context. It's just sustainability. And I was like... God, yeah. guys, do you really think that the public are that naive that you can just write sustainability on a page on a website and yeah. people will believe that you're a sustainable your business is about sustainability? Um, yeah. I think people are much smarter than that, and I think unless you're going to walk the walk, there's no point talking the talk. So it, it's been a big part of our strategy from day one is get out into the real world and do the stuff that you're talking about. So you know, yeah. November we did our Kickstarter. December, we jumped on a plane. We went to Indonesia. We went and did our first ocean cleanup. We pulled 500,000 water bottles worth of plastic out of the Java Sea. We came back to Australia. We got busy doing it. We launched yep. the business in November. Um, in February, we went and did an ocean cleanup in Sydney Harbour. We had a guy, 
one of our customers um, scuba dive for 24 hours straight, broke the world record Jeez. for the longest underwater ocean cleanup, pulled wow. 250 kilos of rubbish off the ocean. We documented the whole thing to show everyone. This is us doing the stuff that we say we do. Um, yep. We then, a few months later, went up to Gari, formerly known as Fraser Island. Our whole company went up. We went for three days, 17 staff, um, and we walked the beach for three days and we pulled about 750 kilos of, of rubbish off the beach. And again, we documented it all and showed everybody, this is it. Like, this is where we're yep. really genuinely doing this stuff. We don't just say that we want to solve the plastic problem because we think it's good for marketing. Um, yep. We say it because we want to do it. That's why we exist. And so I think... You gotta, you gotta walk the walk. You can't just talk the talk. And there's too many brands yeah. doing that. And I think there's a lot of brands getting called out for it now. You know, this this whole notion around greenwashing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's becoming a bigger thing that people are talking about and looking out for. It. And I think the average punter can smell BS a mile away these days. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've definitely the term greenwashing. I'm so glad it's got traction with people. Where mm. I increasingly am hearing people be like. Okay, but is this just greenwashing, which is like a cute way of saying BS uh, or not? And and people are being held to account on whether mm. actually their initiatives are real or they're just trying to divert marketing dollars in in a different direction. Um, that's that's really fascinating. One of the things that I was thinking as I was researching your business was like, wow, you went from starting to a very deep product line quickly. Like, what was um, that decision-making process like? You know, I imagine most people would be like, oh, we'll just get known for like, like I think Thank You Water as an example as an early pioneer in like a, a for-purpose business um, started with just water, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, one product for six years. Yeah. What, why did you go the other way? Yeah, look, everybody told us not to do it. Everyone said it was the wrong thing to do. Everybody said start with one product first. Um, but- the fact that we've had 10 products when we launched is a big part of the reason we've been able to scale our, our revenue as quickly as we have. And yeah. when you scale revenue quickly, it enables you to go and raise money from venture capitalists um, and from angel investors and from high net worth in individuals. And if you can raise money quickly, you've got more money in the bank to grow quickly. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling mm -hmm. prophecy. So the, that, that was part of it. Having a big range straight away meant we could have decent um, revenue growth pretty quickly. Um, but- yeah. The more fundamental thing was we're trying to solve the plastic problem and the more products that we have in people's homes, the more people who are using zero-co products instead of supermarket products, that's more single-use plastic not being made, used once and thrown away. So, you know, we've, we've just about to launch shampoo, conditioner, deodorant and body lotion. That'll be in market in, in a month. Um, yep. We're working on a whole bunch of other products. We'll, we'll probably have 30 products in our range by the end of next year. And again, it's wow. just trying to make sure that every single personal care and home cleaning product that you use in your kitchen, laundry, and bathroom, you can get single-use plastic free now. And, and the, the more homes that are using more of our products, that's more single-use plastic not going into landfill every day. I, I think it's great. And I do love stories always when someone's launching a business. I mean, everybody has advice for them. And there's always, you know, conventional wisdom and a lot of – there's some advice that people like say, no, you absolutely have to do this. And I feel like – Launching with one product, then expanding is one of those things that I doubt anybody told you, yeah, launch with multiple, but as you've demonstrated, it can absolutely work. And I think it's interesting, given the values of your organization, how it actually 
even if it didn't necessarily work, like even if only one of the product lines was really driving most of your revenue, having multiple product lines, as you said, really speaks to the values that you're trying to uphold and the change you're trying to see in the world, that you are giving that alternative to single-use plastics, even if the attraction is not evenly distributed amongst the product lines. Um, what about international expansion? So I'm here in Singapore. I'm sold. I think um, businesses like yours have to exist, and I'm, I'm glad they do. When will I be able to buy your products? Singapore is not on our immediate roadmap. Um, yep. But we are planning on launching in some European markets and some North American markets next year because, you know, we think that we've got, we think we've got a good solution to this problem. It's not perfect and, and we're still learning and we're still making mistakes and we're getting better and better and better. Um, but we yeah. think it's a, it's a really good solution and it's probably better than anything else we've seen in the market. And we want to go and take this Aussie made um, solution into into international markets. So yeah, that's that's the plan for next year. How do you choose which markets to expand into? So our approach has been um, first of all go into the markets that are the the most similar to Australia from mm. a cultural perspective. Um, so we'll, we'll probably be launching in the UK as our first market. Um, mm. Same language, same sense of humour. Um, culturally, probably the most similar country in Australia to um, the UK is probably the most similar to Australia, right? Yeah. Yes, there are nuances and it's different, but they're probably the most similar. Um, similar product formats that they use over there than we, that we use here. Um, so trying to take a, the, our first chunk, um, the first bite of the international ch- cherry is the one with the least resistance, I guess, the one with the most yeah. similarity. So we can go in and go small and learn and build. Um, and then probably outside of the UK, then you would start to look at, you know, Canada and, and the US is probably the next most similar types of markets, um, probably a little bit more different um, and some different product formats, but closer, say, than China from a cultural yep. perspective. Um, yep. So just trying to keep things as simple as we can, not overcomplicating the business. You know, we're only a year old. We've only officially been in the world for 12 months. So there are still so many things we've got to learn. There are so many yeah. mistakes we are yet to make and, and we are going to make mistakes. There's going to be bumps in the road for sure. Um, so if we can take the, the the path of least resistance and probably the lowest risk path into international markets. I think that's that's the thinking that's driven us. Um, yeah. And we'll, we'll chat in a year's time and I'll tell you if it worked or it didn't. Well, I mean, I think you had the biggest curveball of a first year that you could have had, and I think you've you've thrived through that environment, albeit I'm sure painful thriving uh, and and really trying to figure things out as they pop up, which you know what a mental last year that we've had where you just can't predict anything really mm-hmm. uh. So I'm pretty optimistic about your ability to survive the future. I'm hoping that it's more predictable and you're, what you're doing is just, you know, it's one of these things that's interesting. When you hear it, it's like, yes, that's just the way it should be done, period. Like the, the alternative shouldn't be entertained. Uh, and so I'm very glad you exist. As soon as I can be a consumer, I will be one. And Thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining to our audience about your business. I think it's a fascinating one. I think people learn a lot around Kickstarter campaigns in addition to to just your business in general. So I think it's it's been really useful. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much for those kind words. And um, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for tuning in to HubSpot's Unconventional Business Podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'd love you to subscribe and tell your friends, co-workers, you know what, tell whoever. Before we go, a shout out to our mates over at Audio-Technica for bringing us today's epic sound quality. Whether you're after an awesome pair of headphones to listen to your favorite podcast on or a mic to start your own, Audio-Technica has you covered. Head to audio-technica.com.au to check them out.